So Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 reads, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of the fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. And then if you'll turn to Daniel 1. Daniel 1, starting at verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah... King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine for, from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter in the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Misha. Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and this opportunity to come to gather together in your name, Lord, as we worship you through song and fellowship. We now worship you through your word. Thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit that guides us and leads us for our understanding, Lord. Will you reveal to us your truth? Your truth never changes, Lord. Sometimes our understanding can grow, so we ask for that. So, Lord, prepare our hearts. Use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We'll be careful to give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So, as you can tell, we have a lot to cover, so I'm going to talk as fast as I can. Ready, set, go. (laughs) No, I just... uh, but we will jump right into to this, uh, Daniel. There's a lot to cover, and um, it's exciting. This happened around 600 B.C., so a very, very long time ago. And just for reference, just in your mind, if you can be thinking about this, the, the guys mentioned, those young men that were mentioned, 15, 16 years old at this time. People debate if they're 15 or 18, so I cut it in half and say 16. So we'll say 16 years old. Now, just quickly, if we could just quickly go into their shoes, I think this would be helpful. Just imagine being taken by force to a completely different country, culture, and everything is different. 
Just imagine, I know we don't want to imagine these things, but just imagine we're invaded by some country and we're completely taken over. Now, let's just say that you happen to be part of the royal family or you're a very good looking young man or strong, healthy, whatever. And now imagine that you are thrown in to a completely different place. Not only is the religion different, but the Everything is, even the money is different. Any of you travel to another country and you think, what's the exchange rate? That doesn't matter. You don't have money. You have nothing. The culture's different. The food's different. The laws are different. And you just thoroughly got beaten as a nation. See, what, what we see here is Daniel was brought up, and say he's 15 at the time. He was brought up in a God-fearing environment. And he held on to his devotion to God. He stayed close to God. And then all of a sudden, one night, he probably wasn't in battle because of his age. We don't know. They were besieged. They were taken over. And then he's thrown in to this new culture. And he holds on to God so tightly. That's obvious. But there's something else that he did. Something else that I think is important for us. He, he maintained his witness. See, as a pastor, what I've noticed over the years, and as I continue to walk in my relationship with the Lord and minister to people, I've noticed that people along their journey with Christ sometimes back off their public witness. I'm not saying... People no longer follow Christ, believe in Christ. They don't read their Bible anymore. I'm not saying any of that. I'm simply saying their public witness has retracted a little bit. Like John Lennox, if you don't know who John Lennox is, he's an Irish guy, and he's a mathematician and a scientist, and he's just a brilliant man, and he, he was in Oxford and in Cambria, and he teaches math and he teaches science but he's a Christian and he's in all these debates and if you just YouTube debates you'll love him for it so you're welcome but just listen to him one of my favorite debates is he finds out the day before he's going to debate a guy because the original guy was sick he goes yeah I'll do it and he just goes up there with no notes and defends his faith but one thing that he mentions specifically about Daniel is he says this the culture around us attempts to silence us. But if we're honest, us being scared is all we need to be silent. And he goes on to talk about how a lot of times in the Western world, including in England, Christianity becomes something that we do in private. He goes on and says, either... We do it in one of two boxes. The first box is our house. We love to worship the Lord in our house. The next box is the box of our church building. And for years, for some of us, we lose our witness. So what I've noticed as I was going through this, and I had three whole weeks to go through this, but Daniel did not simply maintain his witness or his devotion to God, but he maintained his witness, and, I'm, and I'd never seen that before. So my question here as we walk through this is, how do you keep 
your witness. And just to be clear what your witness is, is when you are out in public, who do you display as your God? There's, at least in my experience, there is nothing more encouraging at this point in my walk with the Lord than seeing someone come to know the Lord. Watching as eyewitness or some other people witness or friends or someone watch someone who totally is against Christ come to Christ and see their lives transformed for the first time is amazing. And this is not to guilt anyone. This is just simply a question to ask. When was the last time you witnessed this? So let's rewind a little bit. Let's just think of Babylon real quick. What was going on? Babylon was the greatest nation at the time. Babylon is the reason why our watches are 60 minutes with 60 seconds. They found it was easy to divide by 10 and it just fit. It's also they're the reason why there's a plow from, well, they invented a whole bunch of things. It, it appears they're the first one to invite the plow. So for you farmers... Think of Babylonian. And then from my understanding, they're the first ones to put numbers in mixed with letters, also known as geometry. Um, really smart, advanced people, technologically beyond everything. So they are on the cutting edge at this time. And Daniel and his friends are from a culture that would still, even at that time, old school. See, Daniel and his friends are thrown into this culture and for all intents and purposes, so far advanced than them, it had to be overwhelming. Now, Daniel and his three buddies, like I said, are about 15, 16 years old when this takes place. Again, I just really want that to sink in. When I read this, the very first thing that I thought is, how would my children respond? They're separated from their parents. For all intents and purposes, again, I don't ever see that Daniel and his friends ever see their parents again. Now, if you're 15, 16, 17 years old, imagine that. Don't celebrate too quick being away from your parents. But just imagine, you, you, you know for those of you who go to camp and by day one you're homesick and you just want to go home? I've been at camp, so don't pretend it doesn't happen. But for the parents, imagine, imagine your children or grandchildren, your nieces, nephew, whatever. Imagine someone in your family that age being thrown into this situation. How do you feel? Do you feel like you've prepared them? Forget them. How would you deal be thrown into this situation? I help out with youth group on Wednesday nights, and I get the great privilege of being one of the middle school boys small group leaders. I say that with a smirk because it's fun. But as a, just a couple of Wednesdays ago, I looked out and however many students were there, I was just imagining all of these students being taken captive. I know it's morbid. How would they respond? How would I respond? What would my faith look like? What would your faith look like if you were thrown into this situation? Then consider... What would you do? How would you respond? And maybe that's not the right question about your faith. Maybe you would think, I'd hold on to my faith dearly. I believe many of you, if not all of you, would. But what about your witness specifically? How would you witness to a conquering nation? 
Our witness is not only presenting the gospel with our lips through scripture. I'm not saying that. That's very important. That's key. But how would you live your life in front of the people who've taken you captive? How do you keep your convictions without compromising? Maybe even harder for us, how, do you keep your, how would you keep your convictions without criticizing the world around you? I have found that it's very easy to criticize a world around us for being lost. I think for Christians it can become easy for us to blur the lines between a lost world and an evil world. Now, don't get me wrong. There is evil in the world. I know that I tend to be more optimistic and yay. I I know that about me. But I do recognize there's evil. There is Satan. There's demons. I'm not talking about that specifically. But I'm just thinking about where that line is that we blur the lost world who needs Christ versus the world who is evil. And how do we not become a critical, angry bunch of Christians. Again, now let's put ourselves back in Daniel's shoes real quick. Daniel and his friends are taken abruptly from their homes and they're enrolled into a three-year college program, if you will. And once they get over the shock of being taken out and come to terms with their new culture, they're thrown in and they get enrolled in Babylon University Class 101. They've stayed home, and now they're taken out, and they're thrown into this. I would suggest, although we are not being invaded, as I know, by a culture that's going to take us over right now, but I would say that the culture around us has changed so dramatically around us. And we have stayed, and the culture has changed. But for the Babylonians, what we see is they have totally tore them apart and threw them in and celebrated them. That's key. Now, just some technical things that just I like to point out. If, if we were going through Daniel, which, of course, like I say everything, eventually one day we'll go through the entire book of Daniel and we'll go through all of that. But Daniel is written in two languages. It's, it's written in Hebrew at first, then it goes to Aramaic, and then it goes back to Hebrew. People argue about why this happens. It appears, it appears that Hebrew is, is focused more for the Jewish audience, which, of course, Daniel is all for the Jewish audience. The Aramaic is for the audience of the Babylonians when this was written. And I suggest that simply because when we get to chapter 4, it reads, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's writing it out in Aramaic. And he is the one who essentially writes out his testimony. Sadly, we won't go through it very much, but... We'll get there next week about that. But quickly, Nebuchadnezzar writes out his testimony. And we might quickly push by that. But when I read, when I was reading through Daniel, Daniel 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and I thought, oh, Nebuchadnezzar wrote in the Bible? That's weird. Oh, he has a testimony? Now, just to modernize this, you know when you get excited whenever your favorite athlete, artist, fill in the blank, you find out they're a Christian, you're like, yay, and then you Google them to see if they're really a Christian? Does anyone do that? Or is that, okay. And then you're like, see, I told you he was a Christian. Hockey players can be Christians too, you know. But it's like that, it, 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 but on steroids in a sense, imagine someone secular comes to Christ, modern today, and writes a whole memoir about their conversion. 
This is what takes place. So now as we consider that, now Nebuchadnezzar, spoiler alert, he goes through that crazy trial of becoming a beast for many years and, and God gets a hold of his heart. But let's go back to Daniel. Daniel, again, he's in this three-year program and part of what the Babylonians do is they take the best of the best, which we've read, and we'll pick up here, and they transform them. So quickly, if we go to Daniel 1, verses 3 and 5, we'll come back to 1 and 2 in a little bit, but 3 and 5, it says, The king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So what's taking place here quickly is they would take all of the good-looking guys. That's how you break them down first. And then essentially somehow they tested them on their knowledge. And if they were smart, they're like, all right, you get to move in a couple of steps and you get to come into the palace. Ashpenaz is the chief staff member. He's in charge, just like if you rewind all the way back to Esther and that king... Xerxes, he had a chief of staff who was preparing the women so he can decide who he wanted as wife. It's the same notion. He is a eunuch. He was castrated. That's how you control and keep people in check that work for you. So you see this? He's take all of the royal family, all of the noble people. They have been brought in as captives. Verse 4, here's his instruction. Select only strong Healthy and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are very versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve the royal palace. Train these young men, or excuse me, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them daily ration of food and wine for his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter into royal service. So, only pick the best of the best from royal or noble families. And after all these, the top of the top, the very top, after the three-year program, the very elite would stay and work in the king's cabinet, if you will, at the very top ranks. The rest would go back to the land of Israel, and they would be the governor of the people who were left behind. The Romans did it this this tends to be 101, class 101, if you're going to take over a nation. So just quickly, I just want to go through this and see if you see a theme. So you take the best of the best, you conquer a nation, you take the best of the best. What does that do? It causes division, immediate division among the people. You create them versus us. The best versus the worst. And then out of the best, like I said, you take the very, very best and you let them rule with the king. And then you send back the other people who are trained in all the languages. So now this middle group people hates the older or the royal family. They also hate the people they despise because they think they're better. It devalues the people. It weeds out the people. What this is is exactly what Nazi Germany did. It wasn't Jewish people they were killing. It was the Jews they were killing. Notice that subtle change. And not only they're not Jewish people, they're Jews. And what were Jews? They named them various awful names. So no longer are, are they attacking people. They're attacking something else. The next thing that they do, the Babylonians would do, 
is they would train them and care for them as best as possible. And the very first thing, if you notice what they did after they fed them and took care of them, we'll cover that. They trained them for three years. We'll pick up in verse 6 of Daniel 1, verse 6. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Ezrael was called Abednego. Now, I have a cool little chart here just to help with their name change. So not only were they separated, their name was changed. Daniel, his original name in Hebrew means God is my judge. He's changed to Belshazzar, which means Bel, which is a Babylonian god, protect the king. See, what, what tends to take place, maybe names are important to us, I would suggest. Names were everything back then, and even in some of the Eastern cultures. See, what Daniel was, was transformed to is a god who judges to he will now protect the king which was the hope of what he would do. Hananiah, God shows grace. His name is changed to Shadrach. Akuz, or Akuz, command, or Akuz, grace. Akuz, the moon god. Babylonians had several gods. It was weird. Um, They had a god from everything. Just quickly, probably, it may help like one person in here. The Babylonians did not believe that gods or a god created the universe. They believed that mystic comic dust came together. See Big Bang Theory? He thought we invented it. And it created all these gods, and each god was in charge of something. It started with fresh water, salt water, on and on and on. Moon god was very important because all the boogeymen came out at night. So you got to worship a god who can control the boogeyman. So you see that Hananiah goes from God shows grace to the moon God who commands the boogeyman. Mishael, who is like God, to who is like a coup. Azariah, Jehovah has helped. Abednego, servant of Nabu, Nabu, Nebuchadnezzar, the God of the overall gods. You may have heard his name called various different things, but you see this? It's this changing of names. One, two quick things just to note about this. First, you know whenever you sung that song when you were a kid in Sunday school? Maybe you did. I won't sing it because I can't sing. But you notice that we remember them as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We remember Daniel as the Hebrew name, but we remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the Babylonian names. We don't sing that little song, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You know, we don't, we don't do it that way. And I think it's because it's a songy song, but it's interesting the way that we remember the story is through the Babylonian lens. And also, just one more fun thing, if, if you want to impress your friends, you can present the gospel with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. See, God was already at work in the Old Testament, even through names. If you're interested, I can tell you how to do that, but just email me and I'll send it to you. 
But it's, it's, it's blatant. And the Babylonians are very intentional in changing the name because if you change someone's name, you change their identity. And if you change their identity, then you get to determine who they are. And if you get to determine who they are, you determine what they worship. But the bearer of these new names is, is the title. And actually, God is the one who originated the concept of name change back in Genesis. And we covered that with Abram to Abraham. Um, Jesus changes Simon to Peter and on and on and on. The other thing, too, this introduces a subtle change. So if, if, if you ever plan on taking over a country, this is how you do it. You change your name, you change your language, you change the meaning of things. But you also subtly change truth. You don't drastically change the truth because we'll say, hey, that's not right. But if you subtly change it, then it's easier for us, for people to believe. Isn't that what Satan did in the garden? He didn't completely destroy God's truth. He didn't say, you know, that tree, you know, will give you superpower and here it is. He said, oh, God's holding back something from you. He was. He was holding back death. He didn't tell the truth. So Satan doesn't completely lie. He just twists it just enough to throw us off and think, help us question. And that's what the Babylonians would do. And then just the last thing, most of the time, people then became eunuchs. They were castrated so they couldn't have children of their own if they were in a high position. Um, there's some argument whether or not this happened to Daniel and his friends. I don't know, but I do think it's worth reading Second Kings 20, verse 14 and 18. This is when Hezekiah was in the king. This is a roughly 220 years before the Babylonian captivity. And this is what Second Kings 20, verse 14 through 18 reads. Well, just let me give you background real quick. Hezekiah, he's the king. He's really sick. They think he's going to die. He is miraculously healed. As he's healed, people from far off lands are coming to see why he was healed. What miraculous thing happened. Enter the scene, the Babylonians come in to offer a gift. Again, 220 years before they take over. Second Kings 20 verse 14 reads, Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked him, What did those men want? Where were they from? Hezekiah replied, They came from the distant land of Babylon. What did they see in your palace? Isaiah asked. They saw everything. Hezekiah replied, I show them everything I own, all of my royal treasures. Isn't it great? No, dum-dum, it's not great. Uh, he didn't say that. But then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in the palace, all the treasures stored up, in, up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And here's the point, verse 18. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's king. So did they become eunuchs? I don't know. Is there a link that Daniel or these guys were related to Hezekiah? It appears so, but I don't know for sure. But all that to say is 220 years, Isaiah said this was going to happen and it happened. So if you're taking over a country, this is what, Bab this is what Nebuchadnezzar would do. Also, Nebuchadnezzar, just a side note, he would also keep kings around just for fun and keep them in the dungeon. 
just to say, I beat you and I own you. But he would also steal all of the royal or the, all of the spiritual things, all of the, the items, the treasures that were stored up by the ancestors because he liked to collect gods. For Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, if you had their treasure, you had their gods. Some people suggest this is why museums are so popular. Because you see what other people valued. You don't keep things in the museum because you devalue them. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar would do. So that is the situation that these guys are thrown into. Imagine that 15 years old. Immense pressure to become Babylonian and you are rewarded if you become like us. So that's what he's thrown into. And Marcus did a great job of talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yes, that's how I remember them, the Babylonian names. That's how I can say it off the top of my head. Thank you for that, Marcus. But what we're focusing, now we're just focused specifically on Daniel's witness. So I had mentioned he held on to his belief system, but quickly, just a handful of things to notice that I noticed about his witness. The first thing that I notice, and we read it at verse 8, and then we'll continue on through Daniel. So, or verse, not, verse 8, and then we'll read to verse 9 and 10. Verse 8 says, but Daniel, this is after his name change. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. So in order to, in the way that Daniel was able to maintain his witness, which I would suggest the way that we can maintain our witness, is he resolved, New King James says, he had decided, or NIV says, he had determined, in NLT, in advance, that no matter what, he wasn't going to defile himself. That's so important. It's like whenever you go out in the rain, it's better to have your umbrella already up before it starts raining. You don't run back to the car, grab your umbrella, and say, oh, now that I'm soaking wet, now I'm going to decide to do something. He had already decided. Now, we don't know when. I'm assuming, and, and this is just me thinking, I'm thinking when he made that long trek to his new land of Babylon, which was roughly 120 miles away, he, in his walking, he was determined, I'm going to worship God no matter what. No matter what will come. For students who go off to college, who are already off to college, who wish to go off to college, or even to go get a job right out of high school, before day one of your class determine you will follow the Lord. For those of you who go into the workforce directly, decide in advance, already resolve, already decided, already determined that you will not defile yourself. I can't answer what will defile you necessarily, and I can show you why that there's one thing that was clear that would defile him, another one that appears that was his own conviction. There are things that are obvious that will defile us as believers I probably don't have to go through the list, but they're just the awful sins. They're just those things. If you compare it to the world, 
I just, I'll go pornography, lying, cheating, like all of the, the obvious ones. For him, the obvious one first was eating food. Why couldn't he eat this food? The, the food that was prepared in the king's kitchen, that's the clue. That means they, that food was prepared as a sacrifice to false gods. He's like, I won't do it. This is Old Testament days. This is not when Paul says otherwise, but this is Old Testament days. That was a clear, direct command. From, Don't eat it. So he resolved, I'm not going to eat it. The second one is the wine. Now, this one is the one that you have to ask yourself, what defiles you specifically? Now, the wine, I'm assuming the reason why he's not drinking wine or decides not to drink wine isn't because the wine was sacrificed for gods. They didn't do that. I'm assuming, and this is not my own original idea, but just reading through smart people throughout history, is all the things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Hezekiah or from the Israelites long ago, that's what they were drinking the wine in. I'm assuming that they're drinking to their God. Look, I'm controlling your God. I'm pouring wine into your God and I'm drinking your God. I'm just told, I'm assuming that because all throughout the Old Testament and, and, and God's permission is, uh, you can drink wine. That's part of a lot of the ceremonies. Now you can argue with me that that's fine. I won't fight you over it. But I'm assuming that's the reason why he doesn't drink the wine is because it's through the things that were in the temple that were considered sacred that represented the Lord to him. Represented but wasn't. Now, I, I can just modernize this for you. I personally don't drink. I don't drink simply because all of the males in my family were alcoholics and beat their wives. And I thought early on, no thanks. Not for me. Now, if you drink, great. Just don't get drunk. That's what the Bible says, okay? And, but for me to feel like that's what would defile me, I can't put that on you. So that's why it's so important that already Daniel had already decided, okay, I'm not going to eat the food. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to give in. So he's already determined, that's so important, already to determine what it is that you will not do. Not become legalistic. So the question just, as you, if you have not taken any time to prepare what you will do in the event of a crisis of faith, do that now. But ask yourself, is there anything that would lead me astray? Start there. The, the second thing that I noticed, there is no sign throughout the book of Daniel at all that Daniel's ever bitter. We don't ever see him get angry. We don't ever say, don't you dare call me Belshazzar. My name is Daniel. We don't see that. We don't say, I'm not going to go to your dumb classes. I quit. We don't, we don't see any of that. We don't see any bitterness. We don't see him say, I hate you. He, we, don't, we don't see any of that. And you can spend all of this week reading Daniel and see if you see it. He's firm. He's direct. He's honest, but he's never bitter. So maybe you've already resolved. You already know what you're going to do when this happens. But are you bitter about it? Who here hates social media? You didn't raise your hands. Thank you. Right? Hate it. Okay. Well, don't like it. Don't be bitter about it. 
And what does bitter do? Bitter poisons yourself. We never see Daniel poisoning himself. And this is really, I think, which is leading to his witness. So his witness is, part of his witness is he's already determined what he's going to do and how he's going to follow the Lord. The second is there's no time of bitterness. We don't see it. And part of that bitterness, we don't ever see him saying, I just don't want to stand out anymore. That combination of already being determined and being with, uh, not being bitter is he's made up his mind. He's already decided. He's resolved in advance. And part of the bitterness that I've noticed was Daniel did not expect the other people to suffer for his convictions. This is big. This is hard to do. My preference is that everybody around me, we all have the same convictions. It makes it a lot easier. The man that was in charge of all the Hebrew boys would have been in big trouble if something would happen. So let's just read that to, just to make sure I'm not lying. In verse 8, he asked, it says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief. He didn't command. He didn't demand. And yes, in Hebrew, there are words for that. He asked the chief of staff for permission who in here does what they want and then say sorry later instead of ask for permission? Right? So they ask for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. That's big. I'm not eating this junk. He asked for permission. Verse 9. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. The Lord does that by the way that we treat people. Have you noticed that? God doesn't just supernaturally, magically, whatever you want to say, boom, they, they respect you and they love you. He takes what you're doing and applies that to their lives. He, he lets them realize it and notice it. I'm not saying God can't do that supernaturally. I'm simply saying God had used what Daniel was already doing to introduce respect and affection for Daniel. So this guy, he's noticed that Daniel has not complained. He hasn't been bitter. He's following the rules. He comes to him. He asks for permission, verse 10. But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Nebuchadnezzar's go-to was beheading. I didn't like the pie, cut off the cook's head. You, I didn't like your music, off with your head. I mean, it, if you really want to get into the weeds, Alice in Wonderland with the Queen of Hearts saying off with their heads is a play actually on Nebuchadnezzar off with their heads. But that's a go down that rabbit trail if you'd like. Okay, so off with your head. So he says, you know, I love you, Daniel. I respect you. I appreciate you. But here's the thing. If you don't eat these foods, you get thin. My neck is on the line. I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. So Daniel says, so what? I'm a man of God. Now, he doesn't say that. This is what he says. Verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant. He spoke. He didn't yell. With the attendant, who has been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, things that were not sacrificed to the God and no wine will drink water. Daniel said, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look. 
compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. That is amazing. Not only does this show that he, he, Daniel had a heart for the person who was taking care of him, even though he was a captor, he said, all right, I'll make you a deal. Let's just try this out for 10 days. You be the judge. This not only shows that he cares for him, but he also trusts that God is going to take care of him because he's being obedient. He's, leaving, he's being obedient, leaving the results up to God. Now, you may be asking, well, what happens after 10 days? The guy said, no, you must eat it. What, what do you think Daniel would do? I don't know. Start a fight? I don't think so. I think he would try another thing. He would not give in to what his convictions were, but not at the expense of defiling his relationship or his witness to the other people. So they agreed, and then verse 15, at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better. New King James says, fatter, nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. Enter the cool fad of the Daniel fast, okay? So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams, which will come in the play later on. When the training period, period ordered by the king was completed, so now three years, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and cantors in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the year of the king Cyrus. So about another 65 years, roughly, he's in the service. But do you see that? He had already made up his mind. He was determined not to be bitter. He didn't beat up other people. Again, just I really think one of the reasons we want other people to be convicted the way that we are is because we do care for people. But I also think we can fall into the trap of wanting other people to fill our convictions because it makes our lives so much easier if everyone is just convicted the same way. And if we're all convicted the same way, then we're all going in the same direction, and that's easier than if one person stands out. Yet that's what God calls us to do. Here's my conviction. One of the hardest things I think, perhaps at least for me, to learn, to realize is someone cannot follow God unless they know Christ. And a lot of times I want people to follow God before they know Christ. I want to give them all the rules instead of a relationship. That's what a witness is. Here is my Christ. He's changed my life. He can change yours too. And then out of the abundance of his love and grace, I want to do what he asked me to. And said, this is what you need to do. And then the third, he, again, he was truthful, but kind. And what we see in his witness is that God has been sovereign this whole time. And I'll just close that just by pointing that out. Notice verse 2, if you go back to Daniel 1, verse 2. This is the Lord, or let me read verse 1 and 2, I'm sorry. During the year of King Jehoiakim's reign, 
And Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Here's the point. The Lord gave him victory over King Joachim of Judah and permitted, and the Lord permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonian. You see that? The Lord gave them victory. The Lord gave the bad guys victory. That's essentially what Daniel says. And then also, if you drop down to verse 9, I, I touched on this briefly. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. He took what Daniel was doing and really emphasized it into the chief of staff. One more for funsies. I don't know why I said funsies. I'm sorry. One more for fun. God gave these, verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. God gave that to these men. These men, these boys who were in captivity. I think it is, and all that to say to point out, obviously the Lord is sovereign, but here's the point. Two quick points. One goes back to what Proverbs 21 verse 1 says. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. The Lord is in control of who's in charge. And the other one is, it is very easy to say that the Lord is behind the things when things are going well. But he's also in the things when things don't seem to be going well. God is going to directly use these four young men to save Israel, which eventually leads to our Messiah, which saves us for those who put our trust in Christ. So just a couple of takeaways, the questions that I have been asking, have I positioned myself in a way that other people know Christ by the way I act? Have I positioned myself in a way for people to know Christ by the way that I act? How is my witness? Then the next question, is there an area of my life that I've become critical to the lost world? And then for me, I wrote, stop it. And then am I really truly prepared in advance to follow Christ? So those were my questions for me this week. And hopefully it will be questions for you. So again, just as you consider your witness, do you already know in advance? Are you showing sign of bitterness? Do you believe that God is sovereign? He is. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time and for Daniel's life, Lord. And oh, it's so much to cover, Lord. And I can't even imagine being in a situation where we're thrown into this, but more and more that we realize the culture around us is, is like Babylon in many ways, Lord. So Lord, will you help us already resolve, already determine to choose to follow you, Lord, which also reminds us what is it that will cause us to slip or defile us or whatever it is, Lord, will you, will you help us with that, Lord? Lord, we also help us not be bitter at the world, the lost world, Lord. Yes, we should push back and fight back against the evil, Lord, but there's a world that's lost that needs to know you, and 
Will you help us not be bitter because they don't know you yet? Lord, will you help us share the gospel in, in your word, through your spirit, and by the way that we live our lives, Lord? And will you help us do this in a truthful, honest, yet kind way? And Lord, thank you for being sovereign. Thank you for um, being behind everything, Lord. Um, again, it's easy for us to come to you, Lord, and say thank you, Jesus, for all the good. But thank you, Jesus, for the bad, because we know you're carrying us. So, Lord, as we sing a couple more songs, we just reveal to us where we're at on our journey, Lord. And if there's anyone in here who who hears this and, and does not know your Son as Lord and Savior, will today be the day. And for all of us, Lord, let us spend some time reflecting on how great you are as we sing to you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.